2: We, uh, we may not be alone.
3: This is
1: the Garden of Doom. Welcome, everybody, into the Garden of Doom. And this week, we have our guest, Ken Godsworth, and he's written a book, really interesting book, called UFOs in the Bible. We're going to get to that in a moment. Let me just give you a bit of his bio. He's a best-selling author and independent researcher whose interests include archaeology, philology, which I have to ask you what that is, ontography, epistemology, and thaumatogy, which obviously I can't pronounce, I'm going to have to ask you what that is, too. He writes in a variety of genres, including nonfiction, science fiction, dark comedy, and poetry. So, Ken, thanks so much for being on Garden of Doom, and welcome on in. Hey, thanks. Thanks,
2: Jeff. Uh, Thanks for inviting me over. I think we're going to have a fun time today.
1: Oh, we definitely are. So I read your book, and it, you know when you know when first I I saw the title, I'm like, oh, this is cool. But you know I you know I've I've read Sitchin, and you know I'm familiar with von Danigan and you know and Nick Redfern and Andrew Collins, and I'm like, okay, so it's going to be another one of these, and yeah. it isn't. It isn't. I mean, it's definitely not another one of these. I mean, you you certainly cover some of the the some of the same ground, but in a very different way, and so. Not to spoil things for folks too much, but I I would call Ken a true grammarian um, in not just one language, but more than one, obviously, because he approached this from uh, pointing out translation errors in the Bible from uh, from Old Hebrew, and we've gone through it on this show before, and I'm sure any steady listener is is familiar that the Bible's been translated multiple times from its original Old Hebrew, you know, into its current form of English. Um, and this is one of these serendipitous things where a lot of things happen sort of at the same time. So Ken sent me the book and I read it. It just, you know, took a couple of weeks before I got around to reading it. I read it. And in that same week or so, I listened to a podcast, one a history podcast, and then another one, I want to give credit to the correct podcast. It was probably Earth Ancients, I'm not, I'm not 100%, but there was a former translator, official translator for the Vatican, and he was on the show and he said, Elohim is plural, and once Elohim was plural, that made a lot of sense to him. And then in the other podcast, which I believe is called The Ancient World, I want to give credit to it also, the host is Scott, and he did a, um, a podcast on the, starting on the ancient Israelites and Canaanites. And pointed out something that I did not know, but that the actual concept of monotheism in Judaism, frankly, didn't start like 5,700 years ago or whatever it is. It started more like 3,200 years ago. And that in the beginning, Israel was actually named after Israel. And El was like the Canaanite god, like the king god, the super, the, the one above them all, the, the, the Zeus. And Israel was... Uh, means to wrestle with, uh, you know, when Jacob wrestled with uh I think Raphael, but one of the archangels. So in, in two other places I had heard that uh Elohim was pluralized and that and and that was mentioned in that other podcast as as well. Um but really that the El E L uh was one in that the ancient Judaism um Whatever it was called back then, whether it was Israelite, Canaanite, you know the, that monotheism really wasn't exactly monotheism until later, and it's sort of been retrofitted historically. So obviously, I'm giving away some on his book that that he goes into that as well. So uh, I don't want to steal your thunder, but uh, it did start with the premise of Elohim being plural. So why don't you why don't you take it from there, or if I miss something in the in the precursor? Uh you can certainly correct.
2: Yeah, I, I also wanna um, attribute Paul Wallace in there and um a lot of his stuff is on the fifth kind uh, dot TV um uh, YouTube channel uh, and uh they're also on Gaia. Um and uh so he started talking about the this Elohim being plural thing um about two years ago um in his book uh Escaping Adam or no sorry, Escaping Eden. Mm-hmm. And um uh so yeah, he's he's doing a lot uh, in terms of spreading the word on that particular piece. Um <clears throat> in terms of uh some of these other guys, um Sitchin and um um uh, Von Daniken, uh, particularly, um they I I guess I would say that they were influential on me in terms of just having heard about them, um, because I was I've been a long time fan of ancient aliens. Um but I, I never read their books um, until, uh, well, I did read Von Daniken. Um, and what, what I found kind of fascinating about that was he, he mentions, um, I'm going to say three to five uh, of the instances that I cover as well. Wow. Um, but he does not uh, reference them, and he doesn't go into uh, why he comes to the conclusions um, his work might be based off of Sitchin. I'm not sure. Um, and uh, and then I had I had not read Sitchin until after I wrote this book because um, I knew that Sitchin was such a large influence on the community, and I wanted to uh, basically write my book with a fresh um, fresh take and not really uh, not trying to lessen the influence of those that came before me. Um, in order to just see what what it was that the Bible actually was saying. So keeping it to um, uh, sort of that first, um, uh, what do you call it? But basically just like... um, First
1: principle. First hand. Yeah. Yeah. And you were very very strict about that in your book. There, There were lots of things where I could tell that you sort of wanted to go into other directions but you're like that is outside of the scope of the book like like i would yeah. really like to hear your take on the book of the book of enoch i i was yeah. i was wanting to hear about your take on if there was anything about muhammad and you know going up the rainbow on the on his winged horse or whatever his white horse yeah. um you know and, and stuff like that. sure we
2: we can talk about some of that stuff um i i purposely left it out of the book um and some of that stuff i'm i'm still probably not aware of but uh certainly um some of it is part of my ongoing research um certainly the book of enoch and i will be including more about that in um, my in my future releases great um
1: yeah i would really love to talk about some of that stuff but the other reason we should talk about it is because we obviously can't talk about your entire book here because we want people to buy your book so we, we can't yeah. we can't give we can't give the whole thing away. Um, right. Just, just, just so, a little taste. But,
2: yeah, it, it's quite fascinating. If you look at Sitchin, for example, so he says lots of very um, intense stuff that's mm-hmm. really wild speculation on the face of it. Um, and in a way, he never gets beyond that because he never provides references. So he'll say, you know, the, the, he's mostly focusing on the Akkadian and Sumerian um, cuneiform tablets. Uh, so it's, he's at a bit of a disadvantage because those tablets are a, not in wide circulation, not like really publicly available and um, not commonly common knowledge. So like, even if he did provide references, would it do any good? Nobody's really going to go look it up. Whereas with the Bible, you, you probably have one in your house. Um, so, but having said that, um, it's really difficult to believe Sitchin because he can't check his work. Um, Whereas, so I wanted to very strictly go the opposite way and say, look, I'm basically not going to say anything um, unless I start with uh, a scripture verse that I'm not only uh, referencing, but many times quoting. And so that's kind of my take is that I will, I will start at a scripture verse or a chapter or like general, or a whole book a lot of times. And, um, and we'll say okay well what what is it saying and i i try not to uh you know put my preconceived notions back onto it but rather I'm, what i'm really trying to do is strip away the preconceived notions that the, that we've had that we have been putting onto it um for 2000 years or more um so yeah a lot a lot of it is um I mean, uh, Hebrew is not my first language, obviously, but um, it is. Uh, I've been reading the Bible and for 50 years almost, and um, I I always was interested in in the etymology um, of not just of the Bible, but of any of anything. Um, I I am familiar with um, several other of the uh, Indo-European languages, um, mostly Dutch and German, and Spanish and French. And so, just when you—not um, that I'm fluent in any of those as well—but even just knowing a little bit about each of those languages, you see these patterns mm-hmm. and how um, words are uh, drifting, and how the meaning drifts, and the pronunciation drifts, and the, um, they, the a word will drift across languages. Even they call it a borrowed word, um, and we have like English is made up. I don't know, I'll guess maybe half, half of the English words are, are borrowed from other languages. Sure. Um, so it's quite fascinating, and, and I started seeing um, as I read Sitchin and started um, looking at some of the concepts he was saying, um, especially regarding his, like he does talk a little bit about the etymology of certain words, um, like shim and uh, shen, uh, you know, he translates that this means spaceship, and I'm like, okay, well, he doesn't really tell us how he got right. there per se, but even having said that, you can see some of the um, some of the etymological evidence in Hebrew, even though they're different languages. Um, Hebrew borrowed heavily from Assyrian. Um, in fact, the the current script that Hebrew is written in, uh, like what you would just call the Hebrew alphabet, is actually um, that alphabet was borrowed from the Assyrian language. And before the Israelites uh, were exiled to Babylon, they actually used a completely different script. Right. Uh, that's called Paleo-Hebrew. Um, and the, the new script is literally called Assyrian script. That's what they call it in Hebrew. So it ends up coming coming up like uh, Asheri,
1: Asheri, something like that. Right. Um, and I know that people, yeah. when they hear Assyrian, they think Syria, and that's not entirely wrong. But it was a city, Assur, and you know, and, and back then, the cities were sort of like states. Um, so you have Assyrian now. Assyrian obviously comes from that, but Assur wasn't, you know, is, isn't limited to what's modern-day Syria by any means.
2: Right. Well, and at the height of the empire, it, it was almost as large as the Roman Empire. Um uh, the the, ba- the new Babylonian Empire was huge. Um and that was the third empire based out of that same area uh before that. So there was uh, Babylon, there was Assyria, and there was Sumeria. Um they're they're separate empires in a way, but they're kind of the same culture mm-hmm. in that uh they're from the same area and a lot of a lot of their um concepts and uh, things like that were were kind of passed down to the next generation as it were
1: yeah very similar to how greek and roman are different but
2: there's a lot of similarities yeah or how britain and america are
1: different yeah there you go that's a good one too um okay. so yeah so you definitely took the grammar and the use of words and sort of retranslated, uh and you know in your view your book posits in way that you correctly translated some of these words and obviously the one was elohim which turned from a singular into a plural which uh meant that uh, that there were which you know is sort of in line with the theory of the anunnaki sort of it is sort of lines up with the watchers but that you know there wasn't only one god there there may have been one being that was of more particular prominence or uh or had a greater interest in the humans of that part of the world or, or, or period um, but it's interesting because I don't want to dismiss von Danegan or, or or Sitchin either. I mean, they their theories are very similar to the kind of things that me and a lot of people I know, you know, came across independently or together, and and they put it into words and and yeah. made it popular. It's like we see a lot of similarities. We see firebirds and thunderbirds, and you know, yeah. and demigods and and virgin births, and and you know, and and you know, gods with similar attributes and stories. You know, all over the world, all different cultures. You know, uh, flood myths, et cetera. And you know, and while those are very interesting, they're not—they're not evidence. They're—they're—they're they're, they're very interesting, uh, possibly coincidences, probably more. I can believe that they're more, but that—but they, the fact that they are doesn't make them proof. It doesn't make them more than coincidence. Just like the the folks who talk about megalithic buildings say. Look, there's megalithic building all over the world. People couldn't do that themselves. When the counter-argument, look, there's megalith, there's megalithic building all over the world. People obviously could do that on their own. So yeah. it, it's sort of like the same argument. You took a, yeah. a a very, a very different approach and unique, and and actually retranslated some of the words and corrected some of the mistranslations. And it gives things an entirely different context. You also framed it in how were these ancient people supposed to understand? They did the best they could to describe some basically modern concepts. And it's interesting because the technology, and I, yeah, I don't want to speak for your book for you, but some of the technology you described is not far and away all that different than some of the technology that we have sort of now. Um, some of it's very different, but it's interesting. Because it's always, everyone's always talking about Atlantis and things like that. These, these cultures that were so far advanced you know, but how far advanced? Well, maybe the answer was two to the five thousand years advance, and and we're you know we're sort of there now, uh, which is interesting right. because like quantum is is the big thing now. So anyway,
2: yeah,
1: I'm going to let you continue the story yeah. right? as opposed to me. No,
2: that's uh, that's true, and like I mean, we don't truly know how old humanity is. We oh, have yeah. we have a lot of clues, um, but all they are is clues. We don't have a definitive answer. So. We're trying to piece together a jigsaw, a jigsaw puzzle, and I believe that that puzzle is um, is is a picture that is more interesting than simply um, the biological details that uh, that a lot of archaeology focuses on. And in terms of evolutionary biology and when did we become, you know, modern Homo sapiens? I mean, that is interesting, and that's part of the story. Um, we also have Especially in the last few years, there's been um, mainstream academic acknowledgement that uh, the Homo sapien is sort of um, actually not really um, a separate species because we, uh, our ancestors interbred with Neanderthal and Denisovan. Um, We're now seeing; um, we now have the ability to actually. Um, look at the genetic markers in our own DNA um, and in DNA analysis and genealogies, um, we can actually determine how much percentage of DNA um, from Neanderthal you have. Um, I myself have 4% Neanderthal DNA. Um, and that's through like normal scientific, not normal scientific analysis analysis, um i use 23andme and there's a lot of other sites that do the same thing uh they take a blood sample and they they tell you some fascinating things um another thing that that is um really evident from that uh type of analysis is that um our if you if you get a 23andme test done and you think that let's say you think your parents are from uh, scotland Well, yeah, you're going to have a lot of Scottish DNA, but you're also going to have Nigerian, uh, you know, Asian, like all these, you're going to find weird stuff popping up. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, how does that get there? And the only answer is that um, people moved around a lot more than we think. They weren't just simple farmers that never left their town. Um, So there was global trade. Like on a global scale, uh, there was trade and communications around the world th- like thousands and possibly tens of thousands of years ago um, That's another kind of trail of evidence that i'm um, that I'm looking into and to so far what i've the the circumstantial evidence that I've found um, indicates at least twenty thousand years um, there were like absolutely global like Trans, trans-Pacific, and trans-Atlantic uh, communication. And, so, and they found things
1: like jade in the Americas, which you know is, was something like a, a few thousand years old. Which jade is from the, the Far East, uh, and
2: well, we have jade in Canada natively. Oh. So that's the thing is, like you know, people say things too, and but they don't know the whole story, and neither do I, and I admit that. Um, Clearly but, neither do I. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You're right, but so that's the thing is, and, and we're coming to a place now where we're able to share this information a lot more freely and openly and quickly than we've ever been able to. Um, things like, you know, your your, um, your podcast is a, is a great example. We're able to now spread these ideas um, among billions of us that are able to now start filling in blanks. And there's a lot of armchair researchers that are doing stuff that has never been done before um because it's in the past it's all been very um strict and constricted and only certain people had access to information um mostly you know tied to the universities um and other large institutions like the vatican or the smithsonian and these guys have already had an agenda and they we're probably not allowed to um, reveal a lot of what they found, um, And there's a lot of politics involved and stuff like that. So right now, a lot of that has just melted away and we're able to exchange these ideas. And um, like if Sitchin were alive today and he had put, this, put his ideas out through a podcast, um, imagine uh, how different it may have been. Like he, he would have gotten questions immediately like, you know, hey, can you, can you show us the source? And he probably would have, right? Um, and there would have been other questions and refinings of ideas and things like that. So, I mean, like, if, if anyone uh, finds anything in my book that they think that I need to refine, I'd love to hear about it. And, um, let, you know, let's have these, these um, chats and communication because uh, that is the only way that the truth will ever be revealed yeah it's funny right now it's i mean till now there's definitely been um suppression of that truth it's interesting is that is it is it because is it intentional or accidental i don't know is it a giant conspiracy or is it just because humans aren't that great at doing everything like
1: (laughs) well could be i mean but you know i started looking into sort of alternative history and alternate sciences yeah, a few years back in, in, uh, in earnest. And back then, I was hearing from different researchers um, and, and scientists who, you know, sort of reiterate, sort of what you said, that they're they've sort of been outcasts. They, they've been uh, alienated by the orthodoxy. And they would say things like, people were in the Americas, you know, not 12,000 years ago or not, you know, or 10,000, whatever the, the Lambridge orthodoxy was, there was more, you know, there was further back, 20, 30,000 years. And I saw some of these stories that I took it as fact. And then, you know, then I saw, you know, the other, you know, more, let's just say hard science based shows saying no. And then this very week, this, this, I'm, we're recording this on April 10th. So Friday, April 8th, uh, I listened to Sci-Fi, which is, uh, you know, or Sci Friday, which is probably the biggest science podcast in the world, probably. It's from NPR. They have two, they put out two shows a week on Friday, the two, basically 45-minute shows. And one of the segments, which is really the only segment that I usually listen to in full, is news of the week. And one of the science developments of the week is that, yes, indeed, they established, they meaning the, the orthodox, strict, academic, hard science community, has established that there were people in the Americas, North America, that is, at least 23,000 years ago. So, you know, they're they're about five years behind, I suppose. And, and you know, did someone get lucky or or did they know something first and it wasn't accepted? Maybe there wasn't enough peer review or whatever to make it go public. But, you know, a, a lot of things that I have heard on sort of these outside-the-box types of shows and, and books and stuff, they become they become given facts just a few years later.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I mean certain um, subcategories are are lagging further behind. Egyptology, for one, uh, I think we probably still have another ten years to go before they they start to um, admit that maybe the dating is wrong on the pyramids and the Sphinx and things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that um, the environment is improving in terms of. Uh, being able to rationally discuss ideas without simply uh, calling people crackpots.
1: Yeah, and I think these things are more fun and more interesting, and perhaps more important than for us to argue about than some of the things that people are, you know, arguing about. Now, some of the conspiracies these days might be more dangerous than than you know, uh, you know, than talking about some yeah. of the stuff that would maybe enlighten the human condition. Anyway, so so back to your you know your book and and you were some of the things I don't want to skip around too much, but uh you you took a word and re uh described it uh from edge and, into the word edge, and you sort of uh reshaped the cherubim and the seraphim from you know sort of basically human bodied angels into more like uh like uh, three dimensional triangular vehicles which. You know, makes a lot of sense. And I was even you know, thinking that there was a point where you were saying, well, maybe they're just the same word or was a mistranslation. I was thinking that could be, but maybe the cherubim were smaller and the seraphim were bigger. You know, maybe they had more than one kind of vehicle. and it sort of reminds me of the, the Indian, the Mahabharata, the, the, I think the, the, the v- Vinayas, which were sort of triangular vehicles, as flying vehicles as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it also reminded me of the Merkaba, which of course is like more like a tetrahedron, a three-dimensional, but you know, that could be wheels within the
2: wheels as well. Now, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I actually was lucky enough to find a little Merkaba in a gift shop.
1: And look at that. It's it's really really cool. cool. Yeah, no, that's that's great and it's amazing that you have that right right there. So, you know, yeah. I I was thinking that could easily be you know, you know, a, a mode of travel and the Merkaba is thought of a mode of travel for one person spiritually, but what is what is what what is spiritually, you know, how is that different than something that's physical that, that we can't explain by today's science? That, 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 right. They yeah. can go wherever it wants. Well, what does spiritually even mean? Like, like yeah. okay, so is it just a conscience? A conscious?
2: Uh, like, did your consciousness take a journey? Well, that sounds more like a mushroom trip or something like that, like, mm-hmm. which is entirely possible. And um, there's another excellent book on on the subject of that uh called uh the immortality key uh by brian murray um he has a he has an interview on joe rogan's uh podcast um and he's written a huge thick book about it which is quite fascinating um and he ties together the uh the the ancient greek mysteries and uh, the early christianity so there's It seems like there's something going on there. Um, And, you know, most, um, uh, a lot of um, cultures, even like more tribal, if you want to say, cultures even today um, still make use of some kind of uh, psychoactive um, ingredient in terms of their spiritual uh, journey or like a coming of age uh, ceremony. These types of things that are generally like some kind of initiation where you come out changed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's certainly true. Um, that also goes back to uh, uh, I can't remember the, the guy's name who was the big um, proponent of LLC and stuff like that in the 70s. Uh, but he was saying the same thing. Oh, Crowley. Um, uh, Crowley and uh, there's another guy. It's okay. Um, so But yeah, you're right. There's uh, Cherubim, there's Merkaba, there's uh, Seraphim, um, and these all do seem to be some kind of flying object. um, And we we have a name for them, but other than that, we don't really know much about it. So it is truly unidentified. um, And uh, in, in many ways, they do appear to be possibly the same thing, or at least similar. But you're right. There's also differences um, in them. So, is it three words for the same thing, or is it three different versions of similar things? Um, it's not. It's not super clear. Uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned um, bigger and smaller versions, because that much um, is pretty clear uh, when you look at uh, the Book of Exodus um, in in one area. So. You, uh, you'll have to read the, read the book to find out, to get the details as to why I'm going to start talking about these things as uh, physical objects, but in the book of Exodus um, there's a ton of evidence that uh, most of the um, seemingly uh, God encounters um, are actually physical encounters with a flying object that's unidentified um, of various sizes. So you have the the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke which is one object um it looks different during the during the day and during the night well why would that be because it it depends on its interplay with light Mm -hmm. it's not a spiritual object Um, it physically interacts with photons and uh, so when you have this object that's flying around and the people are following and it stops uh, so that they can make camp and stay there overnight, and maybe for a few days. And then it continues, and they keep following it for 40 years. So this is the longest UFO encounter ever recorded in all of history. Um, Nowhere else, including the Mahavirata, do you find any encounter that lasts. Usually they're... a couple of hours to a couple of days, maybe, if you're, you know, in the, in the extreme cases. Um, but 40 years, this is wild. Um, so what is this? I mean, a spiritual encounter can't last for 40 years. Um, and a, certainly a drug drug trip does not last for 40 years. <laughs> um, so this is something physical, and it's flying around, um, and it, it has... It's certainly not like just a comet or something because they just, you know, they don't change their trajectory. They keep going. Right. Um, so this is some kind of object that's wandering around in the desert, and these people happen to be following it. But really, the, the object itself is wandering in the desert. And i got to wonder what it's looking for, which kind of takes you back to some of Sitchin's ideas. Now, I, I totally don't agree with all of Sitchin's ideas, but I, in terms of the big picture... I think he's absolutely correct. Um, there were what there were physical beings that came to Earth um, for a variety of purposes, perhaps. Um, but in some cases, they seem to be um, in the business of resources, uh, physical resource extraction. So, whether they're looking for mineral resources, <clears throat> possibly oil. I mean, they're in the uh, the Saudi Arabian desert. Uh, what better places there to uh, to look for oil? So this didn't seem to be a drilling rig at all, uh, but it seemed to be a um, surveying crew or something. I don't know. Um, so so you have that object, and it's um, it doesn't appear to be um, like the same kind of ship that you would normally think of, like that that would uh, that you would use for transportation, because it's long and tall. It's a strange shape. It's a pillar. Um, so that's that is that doesn't fit the description of many of the other uh descriptions that we see um like in the book of Ezekiel and Isaiah, uh, but it's it's sort of its own thing. Um back to Exodus, the um it's also not the not the only ship or UFO that uh, that Moses witnessed because the first one he witnessed. Um, looked like a burning bush, Mm -hmm. and the second one he witnessed was a huge, um, like, craft that could accommodate uh, up to, well, probably hundreds of of, um, passengers, because we do see that at one point Moses and 75 other people go up into the craft and sit down and have dinner with their hosts whose number we are not given, um, but there there was multiple hosts. The yellow eem were there. So let's say there was 10 of them even. Well, already you're looking at having 85 people in a, in a spaceship. That's a pretty big spaceship. Um, so it's not like your Roswell-sized UFO. It's more getting towards the Independence Day-sized UFO. And when it came down and hovered over Sinai, it shook the entire mountain. And the whole mountain was uh covered and hidden with smoke and um the entire uh the entire nation of Israel, which um, could be uh could be up to five million people um certainly certainly several thousand uh, at the bare minimum um they all witnessed this, and they all heard uh s- presumably it says that the Bible tells us that they heard the voice of God, um, speaking directly to them, which may, uh, I mean, I don't know there's only a couple ways I can think of that that could happen to such a large, large crowd. Now I've been to some pretty big concerts in stadiums mm-hmm. and I've seen the types of sound systems they use there. I'm a sound man myself. So I paid attention to that kind of thing. And, um, the number of speakers and amplifiers and stuff that you have to have to support uh, getting communicating to that large of a crowd would be um, quite substantial. Uh, and so you either have this vast technology array of, of uh, ampl- amps and speakers and PA systems, or possibly they were using te- telepathy uh, to speak to the people. Either way, the people were really freaked out about it and they asked Moses to make it stop. Um, so it's, it's strange. Um, and it's, to me, that seems like a physical phenomenon, uh, physical slash psychological, but like certainly with a physical basis and Moses was able, um, to, to request that it stop and it stopped. So you can't do that with drugs either. And
1: right. I, I don't know what that would mean in terms of a spiritual explanation. Well, yeah, I mean, and when you describe it, I, I you know I try to do visuals, and you know obviously I'm just doing my imagination, calling upon. But I mean, we know that when spaceships re-enter into the atmosphere, they burn, and you know, and depending on how quickly you do, maybe you'd see fire and smoke as it cools off. I mean that that that's one. Maybe they use smoke as a camouflage. Um, you know, it's their version of stealth. Maybe uh, yeah. maybe just a blurring of a stealth device look like clouds you know or, or wet atmosphere where the rest of the atmosphere is arid so there's plenty of, there's plenty of what ifs there but I, I also thought of uh i don't know if you ever watched the, the more recent Balsar galactica but there was uh a time when they, they they found a planet they called the new caprica and they lived there and it was yeah, but the, the Cylons basically took over their refugee camp but it was it was a whole sort of iraq war thing but when the galactica decided to uh rescue them they actually brought the Galactica into the atmosphere, which I guess was, not, was pretty dangerous. It was a pretty reckless thing to do, but desperate times. And you had this giant ship come down with thundering noise and then stop and then quickly, uh, you know, jump out of it. And, and, you know, the interesting thing about this Star Galactica is it sort of was telling a different version of an ancient alien story, complete with angels and gods and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, and, and if you look far enough, hybrids. Uh, You know, um, you know, demigods, that that, that sort of thing. Um, So I don't know if they did it on purpose or not, if they or if it was just uh, it was just a cool scene. But I mean, while you were talking, that's immediately the the image that came to my head is the galactic coming in and sort of stopping at a certain height. But it could only stay there for so long. And yeah, loudspeaker systems, you know, why not? Or maybe just the thunder, the the thunderous noise was interpreted or reported as the word
2: of God. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, but also um, it seems that God actually starts speaking, like, par- several paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I believe it's a page or two of text uh, before the people um, get, get tired of it or whatever and, like, <laughs> okay, we've had enough. So they they do actually get, like, some communication, per se. Um, so, yeah, it is strange. But back, back to your point of Battlestar Galactica, I think... It is fascinating to me that um, there's, uh, I mean, there's there's now millions of science fiction writers. I've, I've done a little bit of of that myself, uh, but to me it is fascinating that um, when when you begin to uh, to start thinking about writing a story, um, a lot of these stories seem to be uh, really they really are kind of retellings of ancient the same ancient stories that, uh, that the, uh, that the legends have been saying for thousands of years, um, maybe millions of years. I don't know. Um, but we do, we keep seeing these same stories cropping up. Why is that? Is that are we ourselves as, um, as authors and people who are, are using our imagination, are we already being influenced by some kind of um, telepathic communication that is, uh, coming from, from somewhere beyond this earth or around this earth. Maybe that's the watchers. Maybe the watchers are still here and they're still trying to give us the information uh, that they've been trying to give, uh, for since they've been here and we still aren't getting it. And, you know, we're starting to, um, believe parts of it, but, uh, Maybe that but maybe that's the whole reason that they're here is okay. Eventually, these people are going to understand what they're telling us. Mm-hmm.
1: And who knows yeah. what their time frame is? I mean, their 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 time frame may be completely different than our concept of time. I know in section, right. or at least it's interpreted that his that that the Anunnaki char is a year, which is thirty six hundred years for us. Now, I, I think he reverse engineered this to sort of. Point to sort of major changes in human culture every thirty six hundred years, going back to a certain point in time. The problem, the big loophole with it, is that I don't know where where it last ended. But I was there's been at least one more char that's that's occurred since then, and it, I, I can't remember. I I should have written this down. Yeah. I did the math, but it was some something like six or seven hundred years ago, and there really wasn't any major shift in human culture at that point so he so at either at some point they gave up or or he's missing a char there where where are well we just haven't figured out what that change was yet maybe maybe we're we haven't figured it out yet but uh there's there's one char at least in my mind so far unaccounted for
2: right well okay so on that i would i would also um want to include into any investigation on that um, I would include, uh, the Aztec calendar, uh, the Chinese, the sure. ancient Chinese calendars, um, the, uh, the Indian, uh, Sanskrit or whatever. I can't remember what their calendar is called, but in the, in the, um, in the Veda, Vedic texts, uh, there is some calendric, uh, information as well as, uh, in the book of Enoch and, um, the, oh, i mentioned aztec already i think there's a few other ones um, so there's yeah so there's all this information about um uh various long scale uh calendars and you're right most of them actually do have these this implication of uh like a, a shift or like a, some kind of spiritual or mental shift um but uh, of course you know that was supposed to have happened in twenty twenty twelve as well, um, with when the at the end of the um, calendar, right. which was actually just uh, uh, flipping over into another season. Um, right, Sagittarius but, to
1: Aquarius, something like that.
2: Yeah, and so there's all these, uh, you know, there's there's um, zodiacal implications and and a lot of stuff. So, but really, I think what we're seeing is that there is a lot of um, I think, I think that there's a lot of theory being piled onto what was originally um, maybe not meant to, to describe what we're using it to describe. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it was literally just a calendar and describing some kind of cycle, um, maybe an astronomical cycle of some kind. Um, it could be similar to what Sitchin talks about where, you know, he talks about the, this planet that has this really right. long, um, orbit right. um that for me that's one detail of his work that i i just can't buy into right that
1: one's tough of, and it's very yeah, yeah it's very much tied into nuburu and nuburu's orbit is 3600 years which really doesn't make sense from the placement of, of i mean Pluto's is much further and it doesn't have an orbit like that nuburu would actually have to be sort of a spaceship unto itself individually propelled yeah. for, for that kind of
2: orbit yeah I actually talk about Nibiru and I have my own um version of Nibiru uh interpretation based on um the Enuma Elish which I have uh I have done a commentary on. Right. Um and in 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 my opinion, the Enuma according to the Enuma Elish, which is part of what Sitchin uses. But he also uses other sources, which he doesn't tell us which ones. Um, But according to a straight reading of the Enuma Elish, which you can do yourself because it's in English and you can buy it and look at it in my book, um, it talks about how the Anunnaki, well, actually, so all the terms that that are used and that are based around Sitchin's work um, are sort of correct, but sort of wrong. So... The Anunnaki is used to describe a group of these extraterrestrial people, um, but they're called that. In my interpretation, the reason they're called the Anunnaki is because the, the Anunnaki is actually um, a, a a star map. Um, we we have derived the, our zodiac signs off of this star map called the Anunnaki, and this group of people has been called the Anunnaki because. They were the ones from the stars, and they actually—I I think I, there's a little bit of um interpolation here—is that I think that they were a uh, uh, varied group from, you know, scattered across the, the the spatial continuum, and these people were were the the Anunnaki in sort of in the same way that we would say. These people are Asians, or like in the West. So we have, we use, we still use directional um, ideas to indicate people, groups of people, Mm -hmm. Um, and I I believe that's what's happening there. But um, and so that that's the Igigi and the Anunnaki. They're sort of the same people. After they come to Earth, now it becomes more complicated. Um, But the uh, in in there the uh, Nibiru is actually indicated as a specific point in this Anunnaki system, and it is the exact point where our if you if you look at our zodiac, so you you've got the signs of the zodiac that go around mm-hmm. the, uh, the equatorial um, plane. At some point, that plane crosses. Uh, because it's at an angle, it crosses um, the, the the galactic cluster of the Milky Way. That, uh, In terms of from our vantage point, we can see the Milky Way um, as a sort of a length streak in the sky. That's what Nibiru is. It's not a specific planet. It's the point in the directional point in space. Not even a specific point, but it's the direction from our vantage point that points back towards the galactic core um and so i that you'll have to read that uh, that book to to get more details as to why i came to that conclusion um but again it's some sort of a minor detail even though um you know i i don't think that nibiru is a planet and such does we we both uh, move on past that and say well the, the The point is that there were these characters that came to earth and they they engaged in uh, a lot of politics and enterprise just like humans do and then they interbred with humans um, which is also what agreed upon with what the bible says and um, and many other legends are saying the same thing that uh you know these gods came to earth and created man well okay so some, some of those um, interpretations involve, you know, creating, like in terms of you look at the, the cl- sort of classic biblical inter- interpretation that God like molded a, uh, of, uh, some clay or, you know, mud and formed a man. And, and that also appears in many, uh, many aboriginal type of uh, mythologies as well. Um, but more generally, the gods are creating. Mm-hmm. Well, another way they could do that is by uh, sexual reproduction,
1: right? So Literally creating man from a exactly. from a compatible yeah. but not quite as evolved Homo erectus. Just you know maybe,
2: right? And so we already know now scientifically that Homo erectus and Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal were interbreeding, um, and so we're interbreeding with who? And from where do they come? Um, so that part hasn't quite made it into science, but we've we've taken sort of a first step, I think.
1: Yeah, I hear so much about the the Nisuvins, and there's so little actual information that, you know, I, I get excited about every all of it, but, you know, some people say they're going to be the giants. Some people will say they're going to be the old people. Some people are going to say that they are the Anunnaki or the watchers, that they were just, you know, these beautiful, tall, angular, the uh, peoples that and, and they're the basis for the myth. I mean, that's a lot to extrapolate from a pinky and, and some teeth, which is, as I understand, yeah. is really all they have so
2: far. And I well, maybe we're the Anunnaki. Uh, like maybe yeah. the people who wrote the book about the Anunnaki were not us. Ooh, all right, keep going. I like where you're right. going with that. Well, I mean, we know that there's that there's now um, multiple hominids, hominins, hominid.
1: Hominid. Hominids. Um, hominids. Hominids. I think is a is a. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like a. It's like an English. Uh, yeah.
2: But there's type of word. a lot of hominids, right. and um, they're not all the same size, for right. one thing. Right. Um. You have Homo floresiensis, uh, which also known as Fiji Man back in the day, and he is a very small. He's like three to four feet tall.
1: Right. They call him the um, Hobbit people, or or you know, I guess
2: yeah. Yeah. So. If 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 the Hobbit wrote uh, many of our ancient um, legends originally, then we are the giants, it's, and this is true. And we we won because they're gone and we're still here now. <laughs> so that's the thing is there's, there's always this conflict, there's always this uh, difference, um, and there's always this comparison. But a comparison is meaningless unless you know what you're comparing it to. So we assume that it's ourselves, but that. Is not necessarily true, and there's not really any evidence to suggest it. We just assume it. It's a fair assumption,
1: right? This is true. You just flipped it. It's, uh, just like when the person I don't know about 15 years ago decided to write the Three Little Pigs from, from the Wolf's perspective, and then somebody wrote mm-hmm. Wicked and did the same thing, and and now, uh, and now there are no good guys and bad guys. You know, it's probably longer than that. The Sopranos is basically flipping the script on who's who's the heroes now. That, that's, that's all the yeah. successful shows, like Yellowstone, Succession, you name it, uh, the bad guys are yeah. the heroes. Um, but, I like
2: uh, how they even started doing that in Star Wars, because, oh, yeah. you know, at first Star Wars was very much a good versus evil um, story, and now it's not. Now it's uh,
1: conflicted people with, uh, with conflicting interests. Mm-hmm. Well, don't get me started on, uh, I, I can't remember who it was, who wrote a whole thing called The Case for the Empire, and it's it's pretty compelling, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. but b- we definitely See, stray well, from that. Let's...
2: But let's let's keep talking about that, because the Empire is pretty much identical to what we're hearing from the Sumerian legends. So, uh, my interpretation of the Enumalish strongly implies that there is a Galactic Empire, um, and that uh, en- these characters like Enki and Ia um, are 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 formerly um some kind of like not 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 they're not the emperor by any means at least not at the beginning of the story. Well Anu um, Anu was, but he was like
1: he's like leave me alone I'm watching the game. You guys take care of this.
2: Yeah, kind of. But so the, so when you look back into the Tiamat side of it, it seems to me like Tiamat was essentially the um the Empress, I guess would be the yeah. me, correct term. Um, and there actually was a bit of a coup in which Ia, um, this is in, in the Akkadian uh, story, Ea, um, basically does a hostile takeover, steals her technology, and um, hires most of the Galactic Senate. To become part of his uh, his business, which he then comes to Earth to launch a branch office, and basically they're kind of almost um, in a way breaking away from the empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're a little bit like the the rebels in the Star Wars theory, but they're they it's not quite like that. They're they're more business oriented. So they're more like um, the
1: trade the trade guild that was breaking away in the prequels,
2: yeah, right? So then a couple of generations later though, when Marduk comes around, Marduk is um, actually uh, does the, does the takeover and so rather than splintering off, he Marduk is now declared um, basically emperor of the universe, and the Gigi uh, set him up in the in this like yeah, that's your title. where' does so, Gigi come from what's the root of that word? The Igigi are the um, is well. I mean, it's literally an Akkadian word. Okay. It's not, it has not been translated. It's just an Akkadian word. Igigi. We don't really truly know what it means, um, but it, they we can see the attributes of the of the Igigi in that they are a council, like a, they appear to be like a like a United Nations kind of a thing, mm-hmm. um, or you know. A senate or uh, you know a governing body of some of some kind, um, and they appear to be uh, global in scale or universal or galactic. So it's not super clear. Um, it seems like it's galactic, but they also throw in a couple of. There's at least one reference where they talk about the the universe um, in terms of their scope, but again, it's. I, I don't see that that's a, a really strong, um, I wouldn't make the case that it's, a Gulf, but that it's a universal empire, but it does seem to be a galactic empire. Yeah, and it's, and it's not
1: that important anyway, once you accept the premise, yeah. because, I mean, all emperors and all people in power, I mean, not all, but there's plenty to exaggerate, even right, I mean, look at North Korea, the guy has. you know, God, you know, he's he's straight from God. How many people say we're uh, emperor of the universe? Well, I mean, you know, yeah. your, your universe. Well,
2: I mean, even, even the president of the United States is the most powerful man in the world, or so possibly is. in the universe, <laughs> possibly. Like, depending on who you ask.
1: Right.
2: <laughs> that is that, true. Um, let's, let's
1: stumble back a little bit to, to some of the parts of your book. I mean, you spent a lot of time with Moses, and that's one of the more interesting characters. But there were some, I mean... Uh, You know, I don't want to do all of them, but I I think that maybe we should do one from before Moses and one from after. So, I mean, I think that some of the stuff you did with Jesus is obviously relevant to a lot of people. And then maybe, uh, I don't know if you want to do Abraham or even pre-Abraham, you pick, uh, whichever one. Obviously, you don't want to do all the ones in between. And then then we can sort of stray from the context of your book. So people buy the book to, to get all of the details. And we could play around a little bit with the Book of Enoch and and the Quran and some of the yeah. and, and even the Vedic stuff and and chat about that and extrapolate sure. a
2: little. So uh, I guess in terms of Abraham, what uh, the the, inf- the two things come to mind with Abraham? Yeah. One is um, most of his origin story is missing, and it's like obviously missing. Yeah. It's like glaringly obvious that we're being dumped into the midpoint of of Abraham's story. Um, Even though we do have a very brief summary of book one, let's say. So it's basically like, hey, you guys remember the story about Abraham, how he left Sumer, and how he came to this land and God called him out. Remember that? So we're like, uh, yeah, sure, we remember. No, we never read that book. It's not in there. So... I want to know where that lost story is, um, because I'm, I am I, I strongly suspect that um, Abraham had a, a UFO encounter similar to that of Moses. Um, the reason I say that is because in in the... Um, oh, I can, let's see if I actually have the reference here, just in case. No, um, oh, I'm not seeing it. But so abraham's story oh yeah actually there it is um if you look at genesis no 15 no there's a couple of things in genesis 15 there's a there's a story with abraham that does sound like a ufo encounter um but it's not very detailed and it's pretty sketchy so i don't see it as a strong indicator even though i think it's um I think that's what it was, but I can't prove it by any means. Um, but if you jump back a couple chapters to where we first see Abraham, I believe it's Genesis 12. He uh, basically it starts out as, hey, uh, so Abraham had been called out by God for to leave Sumeria, which is Sumer, which is Akkadia, which later becomes Babylon. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where Abraham was from. Um, he was from the place where all of the Anunnaki stories originated. Um and he was certainly aware of those stories. Uh I you know, Abraham the Anunnaki to Abraham were like um were like the Marvel comics of, of to us or the, the MCU. So he knew all those characters. Mm-hmm. Um now whether he
1: Except their version of the Eternals was good.
2: Yeah. Yeah, fair Not not our version. Our version okay. was a giant disappointment. I, I I'm not gonna go there. I have I have some really
1: positive things and some really negative things to say about that movie. Uh, that's but, a different show. Um, I, I agree. It's just the parallels between the watchers and yeah. that and Anunnaki. Yeah. So so slow stuff.
2: So so Abraham knew this these stories about people coming to Earth from other planets or wherever it was. Abraham knew about spaceships, um, and he knew about all these various characters in in the stories. Um, So Yahweh shows up to Abraham in a spaceship, I'm assuming, because that's what we're seeing both before Abraham in the Sumerian stories and what we're seeing later on uh, with Moses and Ezekiel and Isaiah and everyone else always sound like spaceships. Mm-hmm. Um so I I do think that Abraham did have a, a UFO visitation and uh it was an encounter where he was given a message or you know told something, and possibly uh there was an abduction involved and possibly DNA manipulation. We we don't know because the story is missing. Mm-hmm. So I really I really would like somebody to go digging around in the desert and find that scroll. Um, and maybe they have, maybe that's part of, maybe that's part of the story that the Dead Sea Scrolls are so badly damaged that we can hardly read them. Yeah. Who knows? Right. Um, but anyways, so, um, so there's that with Abraham. Now, the fascinating part that we do know in terms of what the Bible says, at least is after, uh, after the book of Exodus, um, uh, this, the whole story about wandering through the desert and they are, the Israelites are coming to the promised land. They have finally, after 40 years arrived at the Jordan river and they're about to cross the river. Moses has died la- like last week and um, Joshua is in charge. Now, Joshua is a general. He's kind of a military man. Of course they haven't really done anything military in the last 40 years. And Joshua was probably only like 38 years old because the entire generation has died off. Except so they've been eating meals ready to eat. It's basically, mono is basically MREs, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so here's Joshua. And he has some information that he reminds the people of. And what he says is, okay, guys, here. so this is mostly a pep talk because they've finally made it here. They're about to enter the promised land that Yahweh promised to them. And at this point, this pillar of fire thing is still there. They followed it all the way to the Jordan River. And Joshua tells the people, okay, this is a changing point. Things are going to change now. This uh, Merkaba, this fiery thing, whatever, they call it the hornet in some places. It's a weapon. Um, It's going to go across the Jordan in front of us, and it's going to prepare the way for us to come in, so that we don't have to fight as hard. So maybe it, it's turning military. Mm-hmm. So this thing that that has been just leading them around in the desert, uh, this surveying ship clearly has some kind of weaponry involved. It's and a It's now kicking into gear. So it goes across, and and um, as the people are preparing to to follow it across the river, uh, Joshua tells the people, "Okay, hey guys, remember." Our ancestors, Abraham, he mentions Abraham, he mentions Abraham's father and grandfather. So there's Terah, Nahor, and uh, Abraham. And he says, remember that those guys worshipped other gods across the river. So he's talking about across the, probably across the Euphrates River, uh, or the Tigris, whichever one is, um, probably the the. Western most of those two. Mm -hmm. Um, and he essentially says, You guys, we used to, like we in terms of our family, because our our great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham used to be part of a different nation worshiping a different god and in a different place. And so we begin to get a hint of this sort of regionalized territory-based um, godship and where he came out of that area and now was under the jurisdiction of Yahweh. So um, so that is literally what Joshua says and he says, you guys, our, our, our forefathers used to worship different gods and so I'm going to worship Yahweh but you don't have to and you can worship this, these other ones as well or whoever you want. So he's clearly stating, there are other gods, and I'm going to choose to follow Yahweh, but you don't have to. So that is in no way monotheistic, and that is absolutely very clearly... um, uh, What's the word? What's the opposite of monotheistic? Polytheistic. Polytheistic. So, um, So essentially to say that the Bible is monotheistic, Uh, means you didn't read the the Bible very hard. And um, so that's kind of the the most interesting thing about Abraham, in my mind, is that um, Abraham was not a monotheist. He clearly used to worship one god and then changed sides and came under another god. Mm -hmm. So Abraham is definitely uh, polytheistic, and um, the fact that he could even consider changing gods to follow puts a very different slant on what we think, uh, how we define uh, what a god is. Um, Because if there were one all-powerful creator god who created the entire universe, um, why would you you switch? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. You're not going to be like, oh, this is the god, but I kind of like this other one over here. No, it's going to be like, oh, there are, these are, these are, you know, Choices that um, that make sense, or you know, whatever. Based on, I think the, the theory that it's based on uh, geographic um, boundaries really uh, makes a lot of sense, and that also um, is uh, supported by one specific verse in um, Deuteronomy, chapter 34, somewhere. Uh, which I'm going to be talking about in, a, in an upcoming book, um, but yeah, so I guess I shouldn't get too heavily into that because I don't have all the uh, evidence at hand. But um, th- a lot of that is based on um, uh, some, you know, some of this, the the things in the Sumerian myths uh, indicate um, some of those concepts where uh, various people are given um, various of the gods or of the Anunnaki are given uh different portfolios um uh, based on it seems in their case uh, some of them are based on um almost like how we would have like the ministry of defense or or the ministry of agriculture so they're they kind of role based um but there's also certainly uh concepts around um uh, location in there as well so um so yeah, it seems that uh, the Bible actually is not monotheistic, nor does it differ in any substantial way from any of the previous mythologies, which are not really mythologies, but they're just the story of what's happening. They're our our story of uh, who we are and, and what's going on around us. And so, um, so you have the the Bible actually fitting in with um, a lot of these other. Existing uh, concepts around how we understand ourselves, and um, uh, certainly the Anunnaki, or you know the gods, or or whoever they, however they're interpreted in later name, um, do appear to be different from us. Um, so they appear to not be Homo sapiens, or um, yeah, like yeah, there's there's something weird going on. Where and yet they're also not that different because um, all of these stories have uh, have relationships that cross those boundaries. Um, the Nephilim is the biblical example, uh, but it, it shows up in, in every other mythology. Um, I was just looking at a connection yesterday that had a, uh, if you Google um, the cultural uh, cultural interpretations or mythological interpretations. Of the Pleiades, which is the, the cluster of stars, the Pleiades shows up in the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, but the Pleiades shows up um, amazingly uh, in tons. Like uh, there is at least uh, I'm going to say thirty to forty uh, different cultures that talk about the Pleiades in their mythologies, and almost without um, without exception. They are speaking of a story that sounds very similar to the Nephilim story, uh, where you have um, angels or gods that are attempting to breed with human women. And in many of these stories, the human, um, some of the human women at least escape. At least one of them escapes. Um, so there's, you know, there's a little bit of variance, but you have a group of sisters who seven escapes. Sisters, sorry, say that again? Who escaped? Who's the woman who escaped? Um, We don't often have their name. Um, Sometimes uh, I have some theories about that, but I I won't go into that. Uh, I'm not ready yet. Um, I'm just kind of starting out on that exploration. You said Lilith? Uh, All of these. Well, it could be Lilith or Ishtar. Um, So the uh, but the interesting thing is um, so there are Of the group of sisters, Mm -hmm. some are impregnated, and some flee to the stars and and escape to the direction of the Pleiades. So that's why the Pleiades is called the Seven Sisters.
1: Is the Pleiades, is that like Orion's Belt, or is that something else? Yeah,
2: it's it's close to Orion. Um, So if you follow Orion's uh, arrow that he's shooting, because Mm -hmm. he's the... Uh, hunter the right. archer mm-hmm. um his his arrow actually points to the Pleiades, so you're a little bit off to the right uh, is it the or big orion. dipper uh the i believe it's the other direction
3: okay um okay but now the other fascinating thing is that orion and the
2: Pleiades are are basically close to taurus so if you go to, if they're a little bit off of the equatorial um axis but if you head if you are in orion or the Pleiades, and you head towards the equatorial axis, you're going to hit Taurus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I find it interesting that, um, now, Taurus is the exact opposite of Sagittarius. And Sagittarius is also a uh, a guy with uh, a bow and arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and his arrow shoots to, well, sagittarius points us to nibiru which is that crossing point again of our axis and the galactic core so sagittarius points us to the galactic core which is according to the enuma elish which is most likely where tiamat was and and so also possibly where uh ia and these other characters came from or if they If things weren't necessarily from there they they took the power from the galactic center and brought it here so so that's interesting that you have this transportation of uh of of power or dna or culture or whatever something is coming from the galactic core and then there's this conflict that happens on earth um that involves uh crossbreeding between these extraterrestrials and the terrestrials who were here, which is, brings up a whole other um, batch of questions in terms of, well, how did they get here and what's their story if the, if the Anunnaki created us, who created the people that the Anunnaki slept with. Um, so there's all these interesting kind of things happening here. Um, and then as as they resolve their conflicts those who are de- deemed to escape uh choose to go further out from the galactic core uh and keep going in a, in an essentially a straight line out towards our our taurus um which is the bull of course mm-hmm. and it's also fascinating to me that the, the uh the symbology between taurus the bull and uh, sagittarius who is half man half normally horse right, right a centaur sure. right. we usually interpret as half man half horse mm-hmm. however what if that horse is actually not a horse but a bull what if sagittarius is half man half bull and that now look at the lamasu you're familiar with the lamasu from a sumerian babylonian culture so the lamasu is kind of like a sphinx character um it's it's a it has the body of a bull, the head of a man, and it has wings. Um, so I I would be very surprised if somehow those two aren't related. So maybe the Sagittarius Centaur uh, maybe comes from is just a sort of a corruption of that original Lamassu, which was saying the people who are half who made us half. Half man, half uh, bull. Uh, those guys are from the center of the of the gla- of the galaxy center, Centaur. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it makes Tempology. a lot of sense actually,
1: because horses, I mean, were really not worldwide. But there's there are there's cows and ungulates and oxen and and forms of bulls uh, all over. I think I think all of the continents. Um, well, I don't know about Australia and obviously not Antarctica, but. The the five continents at least all have their own form of uh, cow or you know horned undulate, Where horses, you know, for a long time were just basically in Central Asia.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and there's evidence that they actually might have had horses in uh, North America. Um, I I can't recall the details on that, but no, you're right. And um, and also we have to remember that. Um, the the bovine species that we have now are not the bovine species that were here a million years ago sure they're going to look different because things evolve um so we have dogs but we didn't have dogs right. uh a hundred thousand years ago we had something different from a dog maybe it was a wolf uh
1: or maybe the wolf is also a modern modernized version of whatever that thing was true um so all right so we we did okay so let's let's skip ahead to jesus i mean i just want to tell folks that yeah. you know you, you sure know, jesus let's talk about you, jesus you talked about enoch okay, so you talked about ezekiel you just, talked about elijah yeah. as well but so there's things yeah. in the book to, to 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 look forward to yeah yeah
2: um will i don't mind a little bit of a spoiler and, and it's going to sound totally crazy but if you read the book up to the point it doesn't sound as crazy because it's actually based on evidence. Um, so looking at the story of Moses, looking at the encounters of Elijah uh, and Ezekiel and Isaiah and, uh, and Daniel and Joseph, and so there's numerous people. In fact, I have a list here of uh, all the Bible characters who most likely had UFO encounters, and it's a whole page. So there's probably um, I don't know there's that's a lot of people, yes sir. probably probably forty people um, and uh, so leading up to that, you have a lot of very strange um, things happening um regarding um uh, the uFO encounters, but more deeply the uFO abductions and seemingly DNA manipulation. So, this goes all the way back to uh, characters, well, it's actually pretty pretty much stated um, in Genesis 2 that the, the Elohim, or Yahweh, depending on, well, actually let's not do that, let's just say God created man, so that's that's DNA intervention, or possibly uh you know um, you know actually just invention of DNA mm-hmm. um, so there's there's something interesting going on there biologically um, and then uh, there's another step involved whereby God creates Eve and it's a separate step mm-hmm. um, so there's another biological intervention happening there um, Eve Eve is essentially uh well Adam goes into the into the the science lab and god does something to him to create a a new um subspecies or whatever whatever you want to say um which which is eve so that's that's the accepted story there's nothing controversial there Uh, uh, now we jump ahead to enoch um and uh his his grandson uh lamech who is the father of Noah, and we have some interesting stories there, um, which kind of appear in the Bible, but again, they are they sound like references to uh, another story that we are supposed to have already read, uh, which is not included in the Bible, but which we do actually have uh, because we found it in the Qumran caves, uh, which are now part of what we call the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, And as well as there was an existing copy already still being in use um, in uh, a a village called Nag Hammadi. In Egypt, uh, there's this whole library called the Nag Hammadi Hammadi, uh, texts, which is sort of similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, except rather than being hidden away, they were actually part of an active library. Uh, that was at some point um, destroyed. So, the the both of these collections contain the Book of Enoch, which are those several books of Enoch, um, which tells us uh, the rest of the story of Enoch, Lamech, and Noah, and tells us why the Bible says that Enoch was was no more. And he walked with God, and was no more. that's all the Bible says about Enoch Enoch, the book of Enoch tells us the rest of his story um which which, which is very very obviously contains um UFO encounters where uh Enoch was actually flying uh, taken on a trip across the galaxy and shown uh, many wondrous things and um there's there's there seems to be technological aspects to that as well um And then, around the birth of Noah, there is more details given there where um, it appears that uh, Noah was a half-breed, basically a Nephilim type of a situation where the extraterrestrials had slept with Noah's mother. Or at least um, Noah's father accuses her of such a thing, and she swears that that she didn't. but why so what's going on there Um, we don't know now interestingly the angel Gabriel shows up in this story now so following the thread of Gabriel um, we come to uh, Noah and then um, we come to uh, well i mean I, I mean i missed some here i can't remember all, the, all of them but samson um remember samson the world's strongest man right. when he was born um his mother before before samson was um conceived uh the angel gabriel appeared to samson's mother and told her that she would be pregnant um which was um somehow uh, I don't recall why he was uh, previously considered barren um I, I don't remember the details on that one but I do know that Sam, that, um, that Gabriel was involved in that story then most prominently uh you see Gabriel in the um in the stories of uh Mary the mother of Jesus and her cousin Elizabeth uh, he shows up to both of those women and uh, announces to them that they will be that they will have a child which which ends up being John the Baptist and of course Jesus now isn't it kind of strange that the same man shows up uh, to tell women who some of whom are are barren and some of whom are virgins uh that there's also a couple other barren women um, which I, I I talk about more in the book so you can get them get more details uh, into the book um, but basically Gabriel shows up and the it's odd how these stories are told because we hear Gabriel telling them that they're going to be pregnant and in some cases what he says is you you will be visited by the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be with child. Then so it hasn't happened yet, right. saying it's gonna happen, then we skip ahead and the child is born. Right. So if there was supposed to be a uh, an event whereby the Holy Spirit would impregnate impregnate someone, why is that part left out of the story? Um, because that's kind of to me that's more important. Than somebody telling me that it's going to happen. So there's something off about this story. And why is it that it's always Gabriel telling these women this? And that's kind of the only times that we ever see Gabriel. He is the guy who comes and makes women pregnant. How does he do it? I don't know. I know how I do it, but <laughs> he might have he might have different means. Um, but there's there's something strange happening. Um, so. And Jesus is part of that story. So you have to wonder what's going on. Um, What is happening that causes um, these strange births of Noah, uh, John the Baptist, Samson? um, There's a couple other guys, like I say, that are in the book. And then Jesus. Um, And then you have Jesus' claims himself where he says, I am not from here. I am from a different place. Um, Where I go, you cannot come. And uh, I I go into great detail in the book uh, in terms of that. And I also tie it back to some clues uh, from the book of Exodus again, um, in terms of Jesus's healing ministry and how that might relate to uh, the seraphim and the the snake that Moses holds holds up on the on the stick in the desert that heals people. So um, healing is seems to be related to alien technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Jesus is nothing if not a healer. And that is the primary, absolutely by far, the primary thing that he did while on earth. Um, so he comes to earth. He tells us he's not from here. He does a lot of healing, and then he leaves. And when he leaves, it again sounds like a UFO. Um, So I I talk a lot. I go into more detail in terms of that. And I know that that's going to be a tough pill to swallow. Um, And I know that it uh, can really rock your world. And maybe our worlds need to be rocked.
1: It's interesting because it's, it's, it's the healing. I mean, what's more healing than resurrection? and creating life from what was before barren. So, um, you know, so yeah, the, 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 and, and technology that's advanced could, uh, certainly explain both. And those would appear to be divine or godlike. you know, magic, in other words, uh, to, to those, uh, in, in those areas, how else would they explain it? So, yeah. So, and,
2: and you, uh, you and we uh, have the technology now. Yes. So yeah. we have in vitro fertilization, uh, we have stem cell, mm-hmm. um, Research, lots of things. A lot of things that we know how to do, we're not allowed to do uh, because there's this conservative sort of, um, well, that seems dangerous or risky or you're playing God or whatever. So, you know, the medical community is is definitely hampered in terms of what they could be doing versus what they're allowed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, I, I think that if some of those roadblocks were taken away, uh, cancer would very quickly become a thing of the past. Um, we have people looking into uh telomere uh, treatment, which again is uh, is still in its infancy and proceeding slowly because of legislation um but between uh between telomeres and um stem cells and mitochondrial um, type type of thing um, we we could be um i believe we we basically have the tools um but maybe not the exact processes um that uh to essentially end aging and basically achieve immortality um so now you get back into things like you know um peter whalen characters like that who are using um Advanced technologies in our future. I'm talking about science fiction now. um, uh, To essentially achieve immortality, and there's uh, cloning is another way, which which comes up in uh, Asimov's Foundation stories. So we're really not far from a lot of these ideas, uh, and we honestly probably could be doing them already, um, if the if the government allowed uh, the medical bylaw. Biologists and whatnot to to really have true freedom to do their thing. Now, of course, there's ethical concerns. Sure, I understand that. I'm just
1: saying the the, the capabilities are there. I, yeah, I'm not going to opine on whether to do it or or not either. But yeah, I mean, science fiction is a lot of things. I mean, earlier you're talking about what is the soul? Is it just energy? They science has now been able to track the electrical path of dreams. They've been they've seen electrical discharges from The brain when somebody dies so i mean if if the soul is energy you know in essence what's the difference from a soul and you know something that can be defined by science a a transfer of energy back into the universe well that that you know just use different words and that's very spiritual but uh you say energy leaves the dying host and goes into the into the you know into the universe you know it, it doesn't sound all that divine anymore but it's it's the same exact thing. I mean, pretty much it could be, uh, and that falls into you know similar like other science fiction altered carbon. They, they you know they download consciousness, or in comedy sleeper, and you and you right. put, and you put the consciousness into another body. And I think in altered carbon they they called the body sleeves because they you know it was just discardable. Anyway, there's, everyone's familiar with different science fiction. That they, you know there's been right. hosts of you know movies and TV shows that deal with stuff like that, and and of course you know we're Right now, there's actually, in real life, there's like a panel of lawyers somewhere deciding whether or not, I think it's somewhere in Asia, whether or not it, it's ethical to create sex bots, uh, you know, basically robots that, you know, I mean, everything starts with sex and gambling, right? So, it all, yeah. it all starts with crime, you know, something like that. But, um, yeah. anyway, we're going very, uh, we're, we're digressing quite a bit. So, let's, let's. But,
2: really, but it's not a digression because we are the sex bots.
1: <laughs> but, that's
2: essentially the summary of century
1: right yeah mm-hmm. well, I like to think of myself as a sex bot of course but uh, you know <laughs> um, uh, so there was so let's talk we, we covered a little bit of the book of Enoch, but let's talk a little bit about your what you think of the watchers uh, and sort of the you know there were the watchers who I guess were you know become the demons I, I, I'm not exactly sure you know are, are they demons are they not are there different entities and then let's go into the quran especially well I'm the only story on from my, my knowledge of the quran is extremely extremely limited and that's something i hope to remedy you know in the show to be frank um is to get someone to teach me or someone's over the course of the next few years to you know enlighten me but i know that there's uh, muhammad's ascension which doesn't sound terribly different than some of the, you know, the Scotty beam me up kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Well, on that note, we have um, we have uh, Elijah, we have Jesus, we have Muhammad, we have Enoch. Um, so that's four examples off the top of my head uh, where people are being beamed up or um, climbing aboard some kind of vessel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and generally, they do seem to be beaming them up. Um, so a lot of times it's actually very uh very similar to um kind of the 1960s uh you know the way that you would picture alien abductions where there's literally like a tractor beam and the person starts floating up to, into the ship um and that's pretty much the the way that that you could most accurately picture what's being described in Jesus' ascension um, and also that of Elijah uh, where a a chariot, which is cherubim, it's literally a cherubim um, but in this case the cherubim is a physical ship that carries him and so they translate it differently instead of calling it an angel now they call it a chariot. It's the same fucking word people so like let's make up our minds here. So the cherubim come down and Elijah goes up into it and is carried off into space. I mean, you it, it can't get more obvious than that. Um, uh, I haven't I haven't really read uh, much of the uh, the Quran. Uh, very little, um, honestly. I find it a hard read just because of the sort of um, it's kind of like reading the King James version, but um, but more mm-hmm. like it, I think just part of partly uh, part of that is uh the, the timing in terms of English translation um so maybe maybe the Quran is is due for an update or or I need to uh, learn Arabic and read it in the original <laughs> um because uh yeah it's it's a little tough
1: I would say um, that's a big job, but that seems to be exactly the kind of job you've given to yourself in the past, so yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean. Because I don't really
2: have connections to the to to Islam, um, I don't feel super motivated to dig into that. But you never know. Um, there, but yeah, in terms of uh, the Book of Enoch and and the Watchers and things like that, um, there's a lot of fascinating stuff. And honestly, the I, so again having not really read it, um, but I think that the Quran actually contains some of those um stories that are par- at least parallel um to some of the things that we uh, that we re- read in some of the Enochian literature. Um there's so so let's let's talk about angels because the Quran um does a lot better more of a detailed analysis in terms of what are angels and what are demons. So the Quran actually talks about that, where the Bible totally does not. Mm -hmm. You will not find any scripture in the Bible that tells you what an angel is. It's just not in there. So it's interesting to me that doctrinally, um, Christianity has, uh, has, has retained the teachings and the themes of some of these books, that they have literally kicked out of the canon. So at, at, a, at some point, uh, a decision was made that, no, the Book of Enoch is not scripture, and we're not going to uh, use it, we're not allowed to read it, and we're not going to teach from it. And yet, they keep teaching the concepts from it. So they all they've taken away is the references.
1: It's not just Christianity. So, Judaism does the same thing. I only know this because I, I asked. it. like, no, the Book of Enoch is it, in canon. But they, they, they readily add it. But we use this, we we believe that it supports I, I think the notion that there was an Abrahamic Accord. I mean, I, I think that's basically what what it's saying I don't remember this this I have shows on it, so so if people want yeah. to hear the actual uh Jewish scholars, there's a show on Kabbalah with an Orthodox rabbi from rabbi from Israel and then another from two uh Yeshiva trained um orthodox jewish folks from baltimore which is where i'm from and and we talk about that and so if you want to hear their versions those are two different shows um
2: yeah i might might check that out i know that the um the the, like the jewish the jews have the talmud and they also have this whole other body of literature um that uh, is essentially um unknown to
1: anyone outside of judaism that that talks about a lot of these things and so yeah. it's like this whole other branch of right. There's all there's all canon that only certain people know and and yeah uh, and and some of the Christian denominations, as I understand it, does accept the Book of Enoch as canon, and others don't. I think notably, the Catholic Church does not. So you know, it's 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 not even really consistent throughout Christendom. To to steal an old world word and use it.
2: Ex- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's um uh in the current like protestant bible um we have 66 books um if you look at other uh other groups that were part of christianity over the centuries and uh, particularly in the early church um in and around the uh uh, the middle east um in the first century a.d uh there are at least um, 50 other books That we have essentially just cut out um, we I don't know if anyone knows the reasons for it, but presumably there are uh, probably uh, notes from a secretary at the meeting where that was determined, and those notes are now buried in the Vatican somewhere um, but uh i mean it's 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 common knowledge that this has occurred and um and yet we're like. Eh, whatever well yeah but the, well
1: we there. know there's thirty something gospels didn't make it, it, it into through those various councils over i think over three hundred years uh yeah. but but anyway let's yeah. let's let's, let's we i so could talk that to that you forever literally <laughs> let's talk about the angels and and demons
2: yeah. uh so the yeah. so this is the thing though angels uh the whole concept of angels comes from those books, the books that we have been told not to read so Why is it that we're being taught that there are angels but we're not allowed to read the book that tells us there are angels? It doesn't make any sense. Um, So, in terms of are angels biblical? Well, given the current definition of what the Bible is, no. The angels are not biblical. In fact, there's no evidence in the Bible that we have for the existence of angels. Now, Having said that, so the word angel isn't in there, but of course the word angel is a Greek word, so we wouldn't expect it to be in a Hebrew Bible. But what Hebrew what Hebrew words would there be? Well, there are Hebrew words that that are interpreted in our Bible as angel, but those words are um, a couple that we've already looked at, cherubim, which is not at all an angel; it's a vehicle of some kind because. Uh, Elijah was pulled up into space and went inside a cherubim. That's not a person. It's not a person with wings. Um, so there's the cherubim. The seraphim are also translated sometimes as angel, uh, but seraphim only shows up twice in the Bible, and uh, one of them, in one of them, it's it's essentially a snake or a serpent um, which flies. So a winged serpent. Sounds a lot like um, some of the Aztec and Mayan uh, gods with the winged serpent. And um, and also, you, we're talking about Chinese dragons, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. We're talking about... Um, so this. Is, we're, now we're really muddy the waters because when we have the serpent motif in the Bible, things get really weird because sometimes the serpent is the ultimate bad guy, and sometimes the serpent is a healing force. And sometimes the serpent is just straight up a UFO. So there's something very strange going on. And that also sort of ties into some of the things uh, that I talked about, about the the healing motif of Jesus. And that was originally uh, the snake held up in the desert by Moses. So there's a lot of weird stuff about this, the serpent, snake, seraphim. Seraphim ties in with that. It's not an angel, but there's something weird happening. Um, and then most of the time, when we when we talk about what we translated into English as angel, most of the time in the Old Testament it actually means messenger, and the word is um, Mahai, ma, ma, Malachim. Malachim. Thank you. So the Malachim in is definitely a plural. Uh, it's definitely um, because of the prefix that. The suffix "im" indicates that it's an intelligent being. It's an intelligent, it's a group of intelligent beings. So we use words like race and species and, and, you know, class and things like that to describe groups of people. Mm -hmm. It's something like that. So um, I'm not, I don't think it really directly applies to either of those words, but it's something similar to that. It's a group of people. So the messengers uh, the Malachim also sometimes is uh, is actually just a person. Like, um, many times when we see the word messenger, it's just a guy being sent from, you know, the king wants to send a message to his troops in the field or whatever. That's a, that guy is sometimes called the Malachim.
1: But the so, Malachim are subservient to the Elohim, correct? Or maybe.
2: But not really, because the messenger is subservient to whoever he happens to be sending a message from. That's true. So that's the thing, is that we apply all, the, all of this um, theology onto a, onto a word that probably doesn't deserve to have a theology applied to it. Because what what does a messenger have to do with theology? Nothing. So you make up this entire class of beings called angels— um based on what? Well in terms of the biblical references only, based on nothing. There's nothing there. So um some of these other ancient texts um and, and especially some of the uh Jewish texts which again I haven't really looked into but um but some of the uh some of the books in the uh, in the Dead Sea scrolls or sorry in the Nag Hammadi actually um many of these books do seem to go into a little bit more detail about that. Um and some of these stories are very similar to the stories of the Nephilim, um, but they're and, and actually very similar to the um the Anunnaki. So you have elements of groups of people um who are not on Earth and who come to earth and who interact and uh and some of whom stay above the earth in orbit presumably um and are are apparently their job is to watch uh what the goings-on of man so it kind of reads more like a science experiment where we are the experiment um which again brings us back to the genetic manipulation um, from Enoch down to Jesus and probably continuing, um, and based on uh, many of today's TV stories, definitely continuing. I've met um, at least one person who has told me that they experienced some kind of uh, experiment. They they weren't like impregnated or anything, but they have they have a scar to show for it mm. uh, where the extraterrestrials uh, performed some kind of surgery on.
1: They don't know why. Well, it's the, the the you know the lab rat doesn't know why you know they're being experimented on either. Uh, they only mm-hmm. really know it's an experiment. Okay. Right. We have come. Oh my god, time has really flown. I could really talk to you forever. We should probably schedule a, a second show, or at least when your next book is ready. But sure. t- t- tell the folks uh, your your book, any of your past books, where they can find you. Pr- pr- promote and plug your stuff.
2: Right. Okay. So um i have uh, i guess 3 nonfiction books uh ufos in the bible uh magic in the bible and that's where the word thaumaturgy comes from So study of magic um and uh my commentary on the enuma elish um all three of these are on amazon um you can also get uh get to my uh, basically my author page i guess at uh dimensionfold.com uh, you could, that also has a link to my YouTube channel um, and uh, I also have um, a science fiction novel called uh, The Symphony of Destruction and I've written a uh, dark comedy novel Sort of, it's sort of a cross between uh, Breaking Bad and Scott Pilgrim saves the whatever Scott Pilgrim saves <laughs> um, and, um, and yeah so uh, and there will be more books forthcoming uh, when I get time to finish up some of these projects that I've, that I've got underway doing a lot of research right now.
1: Well, that's great. It sounds like you're keeping busy. Um, thank you so much for reaching out to me. The the UFO in the Bible. First of all, it's really fascinating. It's also an easy read. It's not, it's not the man. It's an easy read folks. Um, and I imagine that your other books probably are as well. So pick those up and yeah. check them out. Um, you know, Audible is not a sponsor of mine but if you do join Audible you get one free book so there you go you can do that and like once a month they give you a credit I don't think I've ever I don't think i bought a book on Audible in years I just wait for my free credits to emerge um, so yeah so thanks very much for, for coming on keep in touch uh, and thanks everyone for listening Name's Garden of Doom check out Ken's stuff check out my other stuff check out Garden Views the sister show or cousin show which is more uh I'll just call it mainstream. You know, lately we've been doing sort of legal themes, uh, including cryptocurrency law or stuff like that. But thanks again for listening. Please rate, review, uh, give five stars, let your friends know, share the show. And I really appreciate everyone listening. I appreciate Ken being here. So everyone, thanks a lot. And hopefully we will hear from you again next week.